Okay, um, we are looking at chapter 16 still. We've uh, sent the scapegoat off, and uh, now we need to uh, work on a few other matters in this uh, situation with the Day of Atonement. So, chapter 16, would somebody read 23 to 28? <coughs> outside the camp. So that's the common thread. Now Aaron, he uh, <coughs> takes off the linen garments, those special clothes that he had to go in uh, to the presence of God, bathes his body, puts on his clothes, and offers the burnt offering. Uh, and that may explain this. Uh, we think had had the question in verse uh, 3, was the ram for the burnt offering for himself or for the people? It would be for himself, because you've also got a ram for the burnt offering for the congregation in verse 5. Alan? And uh, so you've got these two rams, uh, and, and it says in verse 24 that he will put, uh, come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. So... You've got one ram for the burnt offering for himself and one ram for the burnt offering for the people. So he does that and um, wonder uh, wonder what he does with the bodies of uh, those animals. They're all burned up. These were the burnt offerings. So there's nothing to do with the bodies of them. Exactly. You're good. I'm impressed. Um, and then... Uh, you've got the one who released the scapegoat. He washes his clothes and bathes his body. And then, for the sin offering, the bull and the goat are taken outside the camp and their hides are, uh, and, and uh, bodies are burned because their blood was taken inside the holy place. So, those sin offerings, they have to be burned outside the camp and the one who burns them washes his clothes and bathes his body. Comments? Questions? Here it says that he will, he's to bathe the body with water in a holy place. So apparently there were some places where they had these 
Okay, that's a good point. And then ate food in the holy place, which isn't always described. Either. Although the holy place, I think the holy place here would still be like the temple courtyard, wouldn't it? That's what I was thinking. Oh. Maybe I could I couldn't think of another place that would be holy other than labor, but it says a holy place, so apparently there's some type of a choice here. We don't Unless it's saying it's in the labor which was in the holy place. That's true. I don't know. Then would it say the holy place? I mean, why would it say there was just one that it would say the holy place? You would think. Could it mean just consecrated place? That's what I'm wondering because you've got a holy place outside the camp. Well, like 24. Bathe his body with water in the holy place. idea of holy places outside the camp, outside the tabernacle. You mean that they consecrated by the priest or that... Like, Are there holy places outside the tabernacle? Is there a difference between holy and clean? Yes. See, I mean, it's way it's phrased, a holy place does sound logical. Like there's a plurality of them, but now that's not necessarily a logical conclusion from that. I mean, when it says a holy place, we have to say a holy place and there's only one. Ben and then Shane. I'm not sure how much it helps, but there are other examples of holy places like where that Moses in the burning bush, or uh, I think it was Jacob, and there was the captain of the armies of the Lord. Uh, they both uh, said it was the holy ground. Yes, places. places where God revealed Himself uh, when He when they were in His presence were holy places. Stephen's point, and I accept. Yeah, which I think confirms my point. I don't. I'm not sure that we can just say that there are other places outside the tabernacle that are just holy places unless God happened to appear there and present himself to the people. Is it 24 that says a holy place? I think it's also translated some the holy place. Okay. So I'm not sure that a holy place is in the way there's more than one. Where's Kyle is Hebrew knowledge? I don't know what happened to Kyle. It could be there in the... I love that. Kind of what I'm leaning toward. Well, that's, that's what Matthew, Matthew Poole says. He says that it's either the ladder or another something else in the in the temple area or out of the tabernacle area itself. That's kind of what I think. Whatever it's worth. I don't know. So, I mean, especially when you think about the volume of sacrifice and things that were going on this time, it might have been hard for everyone to all wash out of the lab if that was the only thing that could do that. But, you know, they could maybe use that for a certain ceremony where they specifically prescribed they had to wash from. Or for other ones, as long as they were in the holy place, they had to wash from. I mean, in the temple, they had some portable basins, right? Aside from the big sea. I think I'm right about that. But I don't know if that was true in the tabernacle. But the sea was for the priest to wash in, and the, the laborers were for the, the, the meat. Oh, okay. To wash the meat? Yeah. To wash the time part. Um, 
portable ones that work for Washington. Okay. Thank you. Where is that? Second Chronicles 4, 6. And I don't know where the other one is. Probably in that area. Other comments and questions? Shane? Okay, are we okay on this paragraph? All right, 29 to 34. There should be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day you shall... For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath, a solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and, the consecrate, and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. The atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Okay, so this gives the time, seventh month, tenth day, and what the people were supposed to do on that day. What were they supposed to do? Nothing. Nothing. Humble themselves and not work. This is a special Sabbath day, a day of no work. What does it mean there to humble their soul? I really know that says it can be translated or fast. Or fast. Well, that was one of the only fast days commanded. Right? The only. Where, where is that? Is, is that Here. Yeah. Yeah. Humble your souls is often taken to at least include fasting. That seems to be the way that was taken um, in Acts 27 and verse 9 when it was dangerous for them to sail because it was after the fast. That's the Day of Atonement Fast, which was in the seventh month, meaning it was like in October-ish. Whenever Yom Kippur... I look on the calendar, it's October 2 this year. October 2. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'll vary some because of all their lunar months and all whatever months. And all that kind of stuff. too many calendars in the world. Yeah, quite a few. So, uh, apparently they would use this time to reflect, perhaps... <laughs> to repent, um, to pray, but also to fast, to have a special time uh, of, of just um, special concentration on their sins and on their need for mercy and on this, this special day and this special event of making the atonement and purification for the, for the people and for their holy place. That's good, though. Mm-hmm. 32 might answer that question on ter- in terms of an ordination <coughs> for the uh, next high priest. 32 to 34 seem to be sort of the conclu- is like the concluding paragraph. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. 
You shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And you shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And you shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins and once every year, and just as the Lord commanded Moses. So again. So that, that, that's the summary. That's an that's, uh, analogy to like uh, chapter 15, verse 31 to 33, or chapter uh, 14, verse 54 to 57, or chapter 11. And whatever those last couple of verses were, 46 and 47. A lot of these chapters have sort of a, a summary, and uh, this one does as well, kind of a conclusion uh, to that. All right, comments and questions on Leviticus 16. If sequence means anything, <clears throat> what was atoned for very hurt, God where God dwells, in the Holy of Holies, I think that to be the Holy Yes. Spirit. Yes. And the altar. And then the priests. And then the people. <laughs> yeah, kind of moving out from the presence of God step by step out. Yes. Britain. Um, so, was it seventh day once every seventh day, or was it every week? Yes. <laughs> there was a weekly Sabbath every seventh day, but there was also a special Sabbath on the day of the king. That was a special. There's also the weekly Sabbath. We'll get into that in 23 if we can get that one of these years. Right? Well, I was going to say seven is pretty significant for them because in seven years you also have um, the Sabbath year. Yeah, the Sabbath year, but then it's okay. Then sevens. Seventh, 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 you got the year of Jubilee on the 50th year. So, yeah. yeah, and every seventh day, and then the seventh month was their special feast month, and you had the uh, <coughs> Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts seven days, and the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast, and, you know, on and on and on. There's a lot of significance to the seven, definitely. Other things on 16? <coughs> they did not have to come, well, I guess this is a jump ahead, but they didn't have to come to Jerusalem for this. <coughs> no, I don't think so. Well, this time they couldn't have. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did this Sabbath fall on a Sabbath? I. Mm. Is it the first day or the tenth I think it would could have occasionally fallen on the Sabbath, but not necessarily. That's what I think. I was going to say that as we've gone through this, I thought, you know, we, I don't know how you can actually do this, but it'd be, it would be helpful to actually kind of do this. You know what I'm saying? Like kids in Bible classes sometimes whack things out. It would, you know, not really kill us. Did 
just keep sending priests into the tabernacle until one came out alive. special Sabbath where they would fast as well as not work and remember their sin. Uh, since I wasn't here, can you explain uh, 29 which says this will be a statute forever? Oh. If you already explained that. You no, know, I haven't. Okay. Uh, that's a good question. Forever in the Old Testament does not mean forever. Okay. <laughs> it means lasting a long time or age lasting. There's tons of the things in the Old Testament that were forever Circumcision, the Sabbath day, burning of incense, I think. You start looking, forever is all over the place. But if you look at the original word, it didn't mean eternal. Of course, there are a few things that are said that didn't mean forever. It's talking about God's grace, faithfulness, etc. <laughs> but the word itself does not necessarily mean. <coughs> the word itself means, uh, one of the definitions here is until the vanishing point. Figuratively, um, mm-hmm. translate that way. It's Olam. Mm-hmm. Hey, I that's one of my three Hebrew words. Olam. 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 Um, when you said that forever doesn't always mean forever in the Old Testament, it does that sometimes in the New Testament, too, right? The New Testament word was more the idea of eternal. But, I mean, I, there's still some circumstances where in the New Testament they say forever, and it doesn't exactly mean eternal, right? I don't know. Like in Revelation, well, that would aren't there conditional forever? Yeah. If they would Say you know, because then it's, you always have someone, but if that was first, people were Yeah, you could have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the situation changes. Sacrifices constantly should have reminded them of their need before God. And when you 
Testament. It's really just shocking that they were so proud and and so arrogant. And uh, you know, which one of us this week probably hasn't you know, thought too highly of ourselves or looked down on somebody else and their their sin and uh, you know, their their weakness is probably our weakness too. Very good. Other comments on sixteen. Okay, that's that. 17. Uh, we are moving into a new section. 17 is debatable. Some people put it with the old section still. More of a, a new section kind of a guy at the moment. Uh, but you can take it however you want to. Um, and you will notice that at the beginning of most of the chapters from here on out, they will start the same way. Observe that. Um, so, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, he kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. The priest shall throw, throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, among whom they war. This shall be a statute forever for them, forever for them throughout their generation. You shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or burnt sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. Okay. Um, so, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Basically, what? Yes, I think that's it. This is a debated question. Is he saying that they all have to bring even ordinary animals for food to the tabernacle? Or is he talking about the sacrifices? I think he's talking about the sacrifices. Uh, although I think you can argue it either way. But I think he's saying that all the sacrificed animals need to be sacrificed at the tabernacle. Uh, they need to bring them there. Um, and that in ordinary, um, you know, killing of animals, uh, ordinary eating, that that's, that's really not what's in view here. But that the, their worship, when they sacrifice an animal, they're to bring it to the tabernacle and sacrifice it there. Bruce? What sacrificed animal was killing I don't know that it would be. I think that's the point here. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how is it arguing the other way? In verse 4, where it talks about you know, it's not brought to the end of meaning, which in that's an offering for the Lord, it seems to be obvious that it's all these animals. Whichever ones he's talking about, they need to be presented as offerings to God. So he's talking about every animal they kill. Yeah, I mean, some people, I think, think that the offering has to be, or the animal that's even to be eaten ordinarily has to be taken and sort of presented to God 
in some sort of a way. You're not sacrificed, but then they can receive it back. Well, in verse 3 it says, Any kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp. Mm-hmm. So it's in both places. So if, it's, if they're sacrifices, you can't kill a sacrifice outside the camp. I think that's his point. Yeah. I think he's saying, you should have brought this to the te- door of the tent of meeting. When he says to offer in verse 4, that is the, the killing that is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, and doesn't he go on to say that's to prevent sacrificing to other idols, too? That they weren't supposed to be sacrificed. He goes on to say, you're not supposed to sacrifice animals away from Temple or the tabernacle. No, the temptation would be there. Yeah. To do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> the worship was to be centralized. They would worship God in the temple and not away, or in the tabernacle, <coughs> not away from there. In terms of the offering of sacrifices, when you come to Deuteronomy 12, he's going to talk about how there will be one place that the Lord will put his name, and that will be the place. I think that's eventually Jerusalem where they were supposed to offer their sacrifices. Mike. Just for uh, not, saying, not saying that, uh, uh, that, that anything's impossible for the Lord, but when you, when you wonder whether or not these were uh, sacrifices for ordinary meals or whether they were sacrifices uh, you know, from the offerings that they had to offer, I think when you think about the number of people that there were, I mean, when we look back and in the book of Numbers, in chapter 1, verse 46, where we call that only the men who were over the age of 20, and including the Levite tribe, were numbered, and the total number of those people were 603,550. So if you're just considering those people at that time, just the, just the men over 20, excluding the Levites, I mean, there's definitely over a million people here. And so if every time they went to eat a meal and they had to come and bring part of that, as a, I mean, it almost would be... As big as we know that the, you know, judging by cubits and how big that that tabernacle area was, it would almost be impossible, I would think, to do that every time somebody wanted to fix a meal. I mean, you'd have to install a drive-through service or something like that. <laughs> and, they, and they certainly didn't do that there with Saul when he went to the media. Uh, the late you know, the media uh, cooked uh, Saul the fatty calf and stuff. Didn't bring that to the door the tabernacle. And, you know, I think we might add this. You know, at this point, the worship was centralized at the tabernacle, all the sacrifices made there. In Deuteronomy 12, when God chose Jerusalem as the place where his name was to dwell, it was to be Jerusalem. It seems to me that there's an interim between the time they enter the land and the time Jerusalem is chosen where they were allowed to offer sacrifices in various places, various high places. Uh, but that after Jerusalem was chosen, then the worship in high places was condemned. So this only corresponds with an animal that you were planning on sacrificing. Mm-hmm. I, so, I mean, so. just not just any animal. And if you accidentally kill an animal, then you don't have to go and sacrifice. It's like, oh, I accidentally killed an animal, I should go sacrifice. I think this is talking about the sacrificial animals. Okay. That's it what just, I think. It's just... It's kind of confusing when you put verse 3 with verse 4. It just sounds like, okay, if you kill something, then bring it to the tent, which isn't really what you're saying. You're saying, don't kill anything. 
Yes. Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. It seems to me like he's saying, if you have sacrificed this in other places, you've done the wrong thing. You should have brought it here and sacrificed it here. That's, that's what I think. I wouldn't be dogmatic. That's right. So, so then how, I, I don't have an opinion really, um, but how would you justify the Samuel's making sacrifices for places? That's why you were, uh, that there is an interim between the time they entered the land and the time that God chose Jerusalem that, they, that this was relaxed and they were allowed to offer sacrifice in various places. While they were in the wilderness, it had to be at the tabernacle. After he chose Jerusalem, it had to be at the temple in Jerusalem. In between, he seems to have allowed the sacrifices in the high places. Do you see that because he doesn't condemn Samuel and other people? Yeah, it seems to me like those sacrifices were approved. But not because of the verse that says it's black. Yeah. Other comments, questions, thoughts? One place to uh, of sacrifice, and that's the Lord. And uh, you know, we ought to offer all that we do in the presence of God. It seems to me that there's some analogy between what they did and what we do, and that we ought to concentrate our worship and our sacrifice on the Lord. So that's that's what I see in this. Now you might look at verse seven, because it may be that part of the point of this was also to avoid idolatry. That you know, when they would have sacrifices offered in various places, then you don't have the control by the priests, and there might be more temptation for them to offer sacrifices to various idols and so forth. So those would be some observations that I would make about that. Your comments and thoughts. Through 17.9. Gary, I couldn't see who was reading that, but I thought in that when they were reading that, it kind of jumped out at me. They said something about a goat demon? or Yes, that's the New American Standard. Uh, he said, <laughs> they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifice to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. Do you have a comment on that? I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's something about that, but I don't know what. Who's Anybody learned in this? I mean, the idol and demon, that's, the demons stand behind the idols. There's a lot of equation of that in the Old Testament. But I'm not sure exactly what the Maybe goat this part is. Why the, the goats are bad, I guess, huh? <laughs> 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 the goat was bad. <laughs> things in livestock, like especially cows and bulls and things, so I, so my guess would be that they were referring to an aisle. Yes. Alright, other thoughts? 
Comments or questions through nine. Alright, ten to sixteen. And any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement <coughs> for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, No person among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. When any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or an alien, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. Okay, so what are we dealing with here? Blood. And what's the uh, provision about blood? Not to eat the blood. So, what? Why was that? Alright, the life is in the blood. So they're not eat to eat the blood. Uh, the blood represents the life. Does that make sense? The, the life is in the blood, and so therefore they're not to eat the blood. What would that mean if you like are hunting an animal and you kill it? What were they supposed to do? Drain the blood. They're supposed to drain the blood. What if an animal is like torn by beasts or something like that? Yeah, they have to be careful that the blood is drained, and they also have to uh, remain unclean until evening. So those are the those are the provisions for for this that they were not to eat the blood, they were not to have contact with the the bodies of the dead animal that's just found dead or has been torn by beasts or whatever. Comments and questions. Does that say they can have it, but if they, I mean, they can have it, but beasts can die naturally. But if so, this is what you need to do, or is it? Saying, general, don't do this. Well, to have contact with the uh, body of a dead animal, even from chapter 11, made you unclean until evening. I don't know if it was wrong to have the contact, but it would make you unclean. If, if the body had not been properly bled, I don't think they could eat it, because the blood would still be in it. It would be like a, an animal that hadn't, hadn't had the blood drained out. Do you just know how Seriously, we're about enforcing this with foreigners who are in the land. And he says no one is supposed to do this. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I just wonder if you know that. I don't know. Brett? Um, so then if you hunt, if you hunted uh, a animal and uh, if you still drink blood, you would, would you be on thin still? Yeah, you were not allowed to drink the blood of any animal. No, I'm saying if you 
Okay, if you drain the blood, no, you could. Um, okay, what about that? You, I think not. I think that you could kill it. It was okay. That the uncleanness is when you come across a, a dead animal of a dead body, the body of a dead animal. Yeah, dead body. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, if he kills it, uh, of course he was a Nazarite. I'm not sure how all that fit into that. But if you killed the animal, then that was not considered to be having contact with the carcass that made you unclean. So when you when you touch an animal that has died from some other way, then that makes you unclean to leave. Except that a lion was unclean, wasn't it? So even if you kill it yourself, so even if you kill it yourself, would it still be unclean? Like if you touched it when it was dead? I don't know. I don't think it chewed the cut either. I don't know. Lions don't seem very cuddly. On chapter 17. Yes. I have a question about guilt. Would that be guilt from sin or just a shame of being unclean? What passage are you talking about? Uh, 16 when it says, then he shall bear his guilt. Yeah, I think he's just saying he'll be he'll be a sinner. He'll be, <coughs> you know, if he doesn't wash and bathe, if he doesn't wash and bathe his body, if he doesn't take the proper steps to rid himself of his uncleanness, then he'd be sinner. I believe that's the idea. No. You couldn't come to the tent of the tabernacle if you were unclean. That's right. Yeah, and the uncleanness is for the period of time that they specified. Other comments or questions? Okay. Um, chapter 18. As I say, 17, some people would put more with the first part of the book. I can, 17 can kind of be a transition chapter. By the time we come to 18, we're definitely focusing on the concept of the holiness in life that are needed. Um, and in 18 to 20 particularly, the, about almost 50 times in those three chapters, you have the phrase, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. These are commandments based upon who God is. Someone has said to say, I am the Lord your God is the most sovereign sentence in all the scripture. That's, that's a powerful statement. I am the Lord your God. And so this particular chapter is going to be bracketed by statements that I am the Lord your God. But that's really true of, of 18 to 20 overall. In 17, they were not to sacrifice to the idol's gods. In 18... They were not to live the lifestyle of the pagan peoples. So chapter 18, would somebody read 1 to 5? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God, according to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwell, you shall not do, and according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you shall not do, and nor shall you walk in ordinary or ordinances. And you shall observe 
my judge my, my judgments and keep my ordinances and to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And you shall therefore keep my, my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, does he shall live by them. Okay. What's he saying? I am the Lord, therefore, <coughs> obey me. That's it. Comments or questions? <laughs> that's powerful. But that's what it means. I am the Lord, you do what I say. You keep my commandments, my laws, my statutes. That's what God expects, because he is the Lord. It's interesting he doesn't give any further explanation. That he doesn't say, I am the Lord who created the world. I'm the Lord that created you, and I'm the Lord that saved you out of Egypt, or anything like that. He says, I'm the Lord, you have to do what I say. There's, when he says, I'm the Lord, there's no further need for explanation. I agree. His position as the Lord, your God, gives you the obligation to obey. There's not only the obligation that God's saying, I am the Lord, your God, but there's also that if you can imagine... God saying that in this powerful voice as he must have, if you could be someone like Moses who would hear him say that, that could be both a frightening and and exhilarating experience depending on whether you're a sinner or a righteous man. Yeah, that's right. Good point. Other thoughts? Just thinking because of Absolutely. There is so much danger in the outside influences. And he sees that and warns about that, and then we see them disregarding the warnings and being influenced and hurting themselves. Other comments? <coughs> ben? You think of rules and regulations for, that we have today now, Just to go along with that, it, you know, we often think that we're not able to fully live if we keep all these, you know, commandments and all these, you know, details. There's so many things that seem to bind us and keep us from being able to fully experience life. You know, a lot of what a lot of people think of the joys of this life, and yet in contrast to that, here God says, you know, the only way to have real life is if you do keep my commands. Exactly. <laughs> Always what he's asked. I'll just literally say, is he saying Yahweh, Yahweh? 
No, he's saying Yahweh, you're Elohim. Right? You got that? Hey, that's two more Hebrew words. I'm up to three. <laughs> Pretty soon I'll be a polyglot. <laughs> I, I've got a note here, Gary, that says that um, it's not from Tommy Pila, but it's just a note. That says, uh, <laughs> uh, Tommy, and it's not Tommy. So okay. Worry, and it says that I and the Lord your God is used once in the previous 17 chapters, and in 18, chapter 18, it's used five times alone. Yeah, a whole lot more in 19 and 20. Okay, anything else? All right, the next section, uh, perhaps someone fairly mature may want to read. I don't, we'll, we'll talk about this. There might be a couple of questions that wouldn't be appropriate. But um, when he's talking about the prohibited sexual unions, when he uses the phrase to uncover the nakedness of someone, that's essentially to violate... Um, their interest and to, to have an inappropriate relationship um, with, with someone, uh, an improper union with them. And uh, basically, in much of this, it's condemning relationships that we would call incestuous, where marriages and, and relationships between close relatives were prohibited, and then he goes on to, to cover some other prohibited uh, relationship. Uh, but when somebody reads 6 to 23. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, it is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughters or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. Your father's wife's daughter brought up in your father's family, and she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister. She is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover her, the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter. And you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in a menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them the mold, and so profane the name, of the, the name of God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
You shall not lie with any animal and make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with. One of the things that you clearly see in this is that sexual desire must be subordinated to the will of God. God has the right to regulate that. He's done it extensively here. He does today as well. Some pieces of regulation are different. Uh, there are some extensions and modifications on some of these points. But, but the idea that God has the right to tell us under what circumstances we're allowed to have sexual relationships and when not is well established here. He's the Lord. He gave us those, uh, that equipment. And he has the right to tell us how and under what circumstances we can uh, do that. And basically here, I think we see God protecting the integrity of the family structure. That the family relationships require some boundaries in terms of uh, sexual relations. And so he says in verse 6, you can't um, have uh, a relationship with a close relative. Um, he doesn't even mention a couple of the closest relatives. I think because they're clearly under the, uh, the oversight of close relatives. He mentions something a little bit farther. He doesn't mention, for example, a sister or a daughter. Because obviously, those would be close relatives. You could not come into them. Now, they're covered in verse 6. And then he goes on to show what other uh, relationships are forbidden. There'd be a couple of exceptions to this. Certainly, prior to the law, there were situations in which marriages between close relatives were allowed. But starting here, at least, they were not. And uh, when it comes to marrying your brother's wife, uh, that was prohibited only while he was alive. There was the provision in Deuteronomy 25 for the leveret marriage, where if you're, uh, or if, if you're uh, a man died childless, then his widow should marry the brother. Um, so that, those are some general considerations. Look at the specifics here. A man was forbidden to marry his closest blood relations. For example, in verse 7, he couldn't marry who? His mother. In 8, he couldn't marry who? His what? His stepmother. In 9, he couldn't marry who? His half-sister. That's right. In 10, he couldn't marry who? Granddaughter. Have relations with her. In 11, he couldn't have relations with who? Step. Sister. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about he couldn't have relations with his parents' closest relations. Like in 12, with who? His aunt on the part of his father. Or in 13. And on the mother's side. Or 14. Yeah, the... The, uh, the aunt uh, by marriage. And then uh, you, he couldn't have relations with his closest relatives by marriage. In 15, with who? His daughter-in-law. In 16, with who? Assuming that the brother was alive. And in 17, uh, he couldn't have relations with his wife's closest relatives. Uh, her daughter or granddaughter or sister. In 18. So those are just some of the categories of relationships that were prohibited. 
They were not allowed to have incestual relationships. John? Are these marriages, is, this isn't necessarily dealing with rape, exactly. No, I don't think but so. It applies there. This is, but marriage. I think marriage or sexual relationship in general, but they were not allowed to marry or, or have a relationship in these situations. Yes, Liz. Does, you were saying that the death in the brother's case, is, does that apply to all of them, or would you just say that was specific? I think that was a specific. Yes. That would make a lot of difference. But here, what, and take time to figure it out, what is the closest that you could marry? Cousin. Is there anything closer than a cousin? I don't think so. I'm not very good at what's closer than what, but I think cousin would be the closest. That you could. You know. Logan. Was it prohibited to marry someone who wasn't, was, wasn't necessarily related to you by blood, like a stepsister? Yes. The stepsisters were celebrities. But uh, you could, but you could, could you still marry a, like with today if, the, if someone was adopted? Would that still be prohibited? I do not have a good answer on that one. I don't know about adoption. I do think. Whether uh, first night, whether born at home or born outside, that might answer. Yeah. That might, yeah, that might, that might be, that might answer. Um, I do believe that these rules still apply today as far as the incest is concerned because of 1 Corinthians 5. What are the state rules? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> Probably varied by state, but I, I don't know. Can you marry a first cousin by the state? I assume you can. Yes, you can. You can? Or at least in some states. In Nebraska, you can. Okay. You know that that is fairly often done in Brazil. I know cousins who marry. <laughs> In Alabama, they asked the question, uh, if, if, you, if, if a man divorces his wife in Alabama, are they still cousins? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, how many Alabamans in here doing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Other thoughts or questions or comments through 18? You said these rules still apply today? I think they do. Where would you? First Corinthians 5. Living with his father's wife was prohibited. Just also about that idea of what New Testament. Oftentimes we just kind of make a blanket statement about fornication or immorality. And it doesn't get very specific. But back here you have what you consider sexual immorality. I mean, it's and so you need to find somewhat vague terms in the Although I would not make the argument that all rules about these activities apply today. I'm not sure that they do. I do think the ones about incest do. Some of the others do as well. Obviously, in verse 20, the adultery is wrong today. Although, I believe that Jesus extends the definition of adultery considerably. Uh, Jesus would prohibit multiple spouses. Although, polygamy was not specifically prohibited in the Old Testament. I think Jesus bans a new marriage after divorce. 
uh, in Matthew 19 and so forth, only, with the only exception being if the reason you divorced your mate was because of their uh, sexual unfaithfulness to you. And, um, you know, some other things like that. There are, there are several things in which Jesus might extend the definition of adultery, but still, verse 20 would be applicable. 21, there's a debate about this, but I think it's probably child sacrifice to Molech that he's condemning. Verse 22, he's condemning uh, homosexual relationships, and he's very strong about that one. It's an abomination. I think Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 would say that still applies today. Uh, homosexuality is condemned by God, and it's an abomination to God. So, I don't know that I want to entertain every possible question about this section, but uh, do you have comments or questions about this section? Really would have made them distinctive from their neighbors. Yes, it would. That's the whole point of the chapter. Yeah, it, it, it would. And, uh, you know, they, they had to follow a different set of rules. They were, were, were operating under a, uh, under a different God. And so he was much stricter in many ways than what the pagans would have been, which would have glorified some of these things. Yes. I think uh, when we read this, it seems like it's really weird. Like, I mean, you would never think about doing some of these things. But I think for them, especially, like, I mean, the, the world had to start somehow. And so it, they had to marry their sisters, you know, somewhere. And so this, this was probably a common practice that, you know, it wasn't that weird a thing. And now, several thousand years later, since we haven't done it, it's weird. That's probably true. And I'll tell you, I mean, it was really weird. Uh, even, you know, divorce was pretty weird when I was a kid growing up, which has been a long time ago. Uh, but I remember there was one girl in my, my second or third grade class that she was, you know, she, her parents were divorced. That was really kind of shocking. You know, I didn't know anybody else whose parents were divorced. And, uh, you know, homosexual activity was, wasn't spoken of. That wasn't a thought. So, I mean, you know, sins, uh, people's customs about sin fluctuate. And things that may not be accepted now might be accepted 20 years from now or 40 years from now. Do what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you didn't. Well, you better keep it that way. He, uh, well, he, he, he said something he shouldn't have yesterday, uh, Mike. So. <laughs> First Corinthians 5. Oh, okay. Yes, Ben. Amen. Exactly. <laughs> Not there, no sin had something to joke about. Whether it be homosexuality, swearing, anything. Other comments? Okay, how about 24 to uh, 30? And you shall not commit any of these 
Okay. They are not to do these things because they would defile themselves. Because, um, think about what the land has done. The land was about to spew out, vomit out its inhabitants because of these things. They, if they do the same thing, God will vomit them out. It is very important that they keep these commands and not practice any of the abominable things that God expelled the nations, the Canaanites, from the land for. Comments and questions? John. In verse 30, um, is the word, the use of the word unclean, there supposed to be the idea of sin? Uh, 30, I don't have that one. Defiled. Defiled. Word practice before you never make yourself unclean. I don't know if it's the same word. Is it the same word uh, in 30, Caleb, as unclean has been? Uh, we have defile. Defile yourself. Certainly there are abominable customs, so it's more than just ceremonial uncleanness. Like polluted or contaminated? Is it the same word that's usually translated unclean? It can mean unclean. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Where's okay. Kyle when you need him? I don't know. Where is Kyle? Do you go? Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he they'll, probably, they'll probably be back after a while. Uh, store up your Hebrew questions and we can ask him. I don't know if he really knows that much about Hebrew. You know. it's, it's, it's a different word. Okay. It is a different word, but it, it means roughly the same thing. Okay. But this is definitely the same word. Yes. The abominations would say it's sin. I don't think there's any abomination that wouldn't be sin. Yeah, I guess sometimes it is different. A lot of times unclean does is the exact same word. It just okay. I think they might have a similar word the way that the original words were. Caleb may be the uh, second most uh, knowledgeable uh, Hebrew student in here. I don't know. They don't have a lot of Hebrew knowledge around here, I don't think. I have little words. Uh, I do three, so I got to be... All right, any other comments or questions uh, on chapter 18? Gary, did, uh, just from past conversations that I've had, I don't, I don't, I'm not dogmatic on anything like this, but I've had someone make a comment to me before along the lines that uh, when I'm talking about the land steering the people out, they eventually, by the time 780 came around, that this is kind of what happened to those people because they've fallen so far from God that basically they events that took place historically that they were, in a sense, just came to pass. Yeah, I mean, but I think even before that, when they were exiled. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's the same principle. It's God doing it. It's not just that the land, some kind of a reflex does it. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, God, God <laughs> judged the uh, Israelites <laughs> in AD 70 just as he has in the time of Captain. I, I, I didn't argue that. I, I thought it was a good comparison because generally when we see anything in the Bible, a if you get the general idea that the principle applies in various places throughout the Bible. Absolutely. Yes. I've got some note that says something about, in, for instance, in verse 27, it says defiled. Didn't we say that it means polluted or is translated polluted in some translations? Translated unclean, maybe. So I don't know. Okay. But it's defiled. It, it's ironic because the very, uh, you know, a lot of the idol worship they participated in was to. Uh, cause fertility of the land the harvest and yet that was the very thing that would cause them to be spewed out of the land not to make it yeah, good, point. Point. good point other thoughts 
All right, let's take a 10 or 15 minute break here, and then we'll come back and work on 19, which is a really cool chapter. I think you'll like that. Mm -hmm.